Chapter 7 of Norse Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 An Important Movement. It was now well into July. The last proposed survey was made, and all hands were on shipboard. But the Arctic fetters still bound the advance, with no signs of loosening. The garb of midwinter was yet covering land and sea, and in every breeze there was a dismal whisper to the explorers of another winter in the ice. The thought was appalling to both officers and men. They had neither health, food, nor fuel for such an experience. To abandon the vessel and try to escape with the boats and sledges was impossible in the prostrate condition of the men. Having carefully studied the situation, Dr. Kane resolved to try to reach Beachy Island, and thus communicate with the British exploring expedition, or by good luck with some whaler, and so secure relief. This island we have often visited in our voyages with the Arctic heroes. It is, it will be recollected, at the mouth of Wellington Channel. When this plan was announced to the officers, it was approved cordially. Both officers and men were ready to volunteer to accompany him. He chose five only, Emgari, Morton, Riley, Hickey, and Hans. Their boat was the old forlorn hope. The outfit was the best possible, though poor enough. The hope was mounted on the sledge Faith. The provisions were put on a St. John's sledge. The Faith started off ahead, the smaller sledge, to which Dr. Kane and two of the men attached themselves, followed. It took five days of incessant toil, with many head flows, to reach the water and launch the hope, though the distance from the brig was only twenty miles. The boat behaved well, and they reached Littleton Island, where they were rejoiced to see numerous ducks. Watching their course as they flew away, the explorers were led to several islets, whose rocky ledges were covered with their nests, and around which they hovered in clouds. The young birds were taking their first lesson in flying, or were still nestling under their mother's wings. In a few hours over two hundred birds were taken, the gun bringing down several at one shot, and others were knocked over with stones. But the men were not the only enemies of the ducks. Nearby was a settlement of a large, voracious species of gull. They swooped down, seized, gobbled up, and bore away to their nests the young aiders, without seeming to doubt that they were doing a fair, and, to themselves, a pleasant business. The gulls would seize the little aiders with their great yellow bills, throw their heads up, and then, their victims would disappear down their throats, and in a few moments after they would be ejected into their nests and go down the throats of their young. The ducks fought the gulls bravely in the interests of their brood, but the victory was with the stronger. Our voyagers pitied, of course, the bereaved eider mothers, despised the cormorant gulls, but gladly increased their stock of needed provisions with both. They filled four large India rubber bags with these sea-fowl, after cleaning and rudely boning them. Leaving this profitable camping place, 
the boat was soon in the open seaway. One day's pleasant sailing was quite as much in that way as experience taught them to expect. A violent storm arose. The waves ran high, and their clumsy boat, trembling under the strain, was in danger of sinking at any moment. The safety of the whole company depended entirely upon the skill and nerve of Emgari. For twenty-two successive hours he held in his strong grasp the steering oar and kept the head of the boat to the sea. A break of the oar or a slip from his hand and all was lost. They finally grappled an old floe in a slightly sheltered place and rowed out the storm. For twelve days, heroic exertions were made to get the boat through the pack, which now beset them, with the view of working south and west. Little progress was made, and the men, wet, weary, and worn, began to fail. In view of this state of things, the commander directed his course to Northumberland Island, near which they were coasting. Here they found three recently occupied but now forsaken Eskimo huts. The foxes were abundant, and their young ones greeted the strangers with vociferous barking. They found here, too, what was more valuable, the scarvy grass. Rest, fresh fowl, and cochlearia greatly refreshed the whole party. Seeing the utter impossibility of going south, they made the best of their way back to the brig. It was a sad and joyful meeting with their old comrades. Their return safely was joyful, but the return spoke of another winter. By great exertions the brig was loosened from her icy cradle and warped to a position more favorable for an escape, should the open water reach the vicinity. On the 17th of August, instead of a glad breaking up of the old ice, came the formation of new ice, thick enough to bear a man. The question of an escape of the brig seemed settled. The allowance of wood was fixed to six pounds a meal. This gave them coffee twice a day, and soup once. Darkness was ahead, and if the fuel utterly failed, it would be doubly cheerless. The Sabbath rest and devotions became more solemn. The prayer Lord, accept our gratitude and bless our undertakings, was changed to, Lord, accept our gratitude and restore us to our homes. Affairs looked so dark that Dr. Kane deemed it wise to leave a record of the expedition on some conspicuous spot. A position was selected on a high cliff which commanded an extensive view over the icy waste. On its broad, rocky face, the words, Advance, A.D. 1853-54, were painted in large letters, which could be read afar off. A pyramid of heavy stones was built above it and marked with a cross. Beneath it, they reverently buried the bodies of their deceased companions. Near this, a hole was worked into the rock, and a paper, enclosed in a glass vessel sealed with lead, was deposited. On this paper was written the names of the officers and crew, the results in general thus far of the expedition, and their present condition. They proposed to add to the deposit a paper containing the date of their 
departure, should they ever get away, and showing their plans of escape. Now, more earnestly than ever, the winter and what to do was looked in the face. Some thought that an escape to South Greenland was still possible, and even the best thing to do. The question of detaching a part of the company to make the experiment was debated, but the commander arrived at a settled conviction that such an enterprise was impracticable. In the meantime, the ice and tides were closely examined for a considerable distance, for the slightest evidence of a coming liberation of the poor, ice-bound craft. As early as August 24th, all hopes of such a liberation seemed to have faded from every mind. The whole company, officers and crew, were assembled in council. The commander gave the members his reasons, in full, for deeming it wise to stand by the vessel. He then gave his permission for any part of the company, who chose to do so, to depart on their own responsibility. He required of such to renounce in writing all claims upon the captain and those who remained. The roll was then called, and nine out of the seventeen decided to make the hazardous experiment. At the head of this party was Dr. Hyes and Peterson. Besides the hope of a successful escape, they were influenced in the course they were taking by the thought that the quarters in the brig were so straitened that the health and comfort of those remaining would be increased, and the causes of disease and death diminished by their departure. And still further, if the withdrawing party perished, an equal number was likely to die if all remained. The decision having been made, Dr. Kane gave them a liberal portion of the resources of the brig, a goodbye blessing, with written assurances of a brother's welcome should they return. They left August 28. Those who remained with Dr. Kane were Brooks, M. Gurry, Wilson, Godfellow, Morton, Olson, Hickey, and Hans. The situation of these was increasingly dreary on the departure of half of their companions. They felt the necessity of immediate systematic action to drive away desponding thoughts, as well as to make the best possible preparation for the coming struggle with darkness, cold, poverty, and disease. The discipline of the vessel, with all its formality of duties, was strictly maintained. The ceremonies of the table, the religious services, the regular watching, in which every man took his turn, unless prevented by sickness, the scientific observations of the sky, the weather and the tides, the detailed care of the fire and the lights, all went on, as if there was no burdens of mind to embarrass them. In view of the small stock of fuel, they commenced turning the brig into something like an Eskimo igloo or hut, a space in the cabin measuring twenty feet by eighteen was set off as a room for all hands. Every one then went to work, and, according to his measure of strength, gathered moss. With this, an inner wall was made for the cabin, reaching from the floor to the ceiling. The floor itself was caulked with plaster of Paris, 
and common paste. Then two inches of manila oakum was thrown over it, and upon this a canvas carpet was spread. From this room an avenue three feet high and two and a half feet wide was made. It was twelve feet long and descended four feet, opening into the hold. It was moss-lined and closed with a door at each end. It answered to the tossut of the Eskimo hut, or the sort of tunnel through which they creep into their one room. All ingress and egress of our explorers were through this avenue on their hands and knees. From the dark hold they groped their way to the main hatchway, up which, by a stairway of boxes, they ascended into the open air. The quarter-deck also was well padded with turf and moss. When this was done, no frost king but the one presiding over the polar regions could have entered. Even he had to drop his crown of icicles at the outer door of the avenue. The next step was to secure, so far as possible, a supply of fuel for the coming darkness. A small quantity of coal yet remained for an emergency. They began now, September 10th, to strip off some of the extra planking outside of the deck and to pile it up for stow use. Having thus put the brig itself into winter trim, they were diligently to work to arrange its immediate vicinity on the floe. Their beef-house came first, which was simply a carefully stowed pile of barrels, containing their water-soaked beef and pork. Next was a kind of block-house, made of the barrels of flour, beans, and dried apples. From a flagstaff on one corner of this fluttered a red and white ensign, which gave way on Sundays to a grinnell flag. From the blockhouse opened a travelled way, which they called New London Avenue. On this were the boats. Around all this was a rope barrier, which said to the outside world, Thus far only shalt thou come. Outside of this was a magnificent hut made of barrel frames and snow, for the special use of Eskimo visitors. It was in great danger of a tearing down for its coveted wood. End of chapter 7